My name's Daniel Long. I'm a pastor here at Grace. And during this Advent season, our theme has been waiting. What does it mean? What does it look like? What does it feel like to be people who wait on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ um, as we kind of move into Christmas? Well, through this season, over the past few Sundays, um, there's been opportunity for a few different people here to give meditations through different forms of art um, photography, film, music, and this morning poetry to, to help us consider what might it mean to be people who wait and what are some of the dynamics involved in that. Well, this morning I'd like to invite up Susan Davis. Um, she is going to be giving a meditation through um, her own poem uh, that she has written. Susan Davis is a poet. She is also a creative writing teacher, but most importantly, just a dear friend. I love Susan. I'm so grateful for her and for her presence in this community and grateful for her willingness to help us think about waiting. So, thank you. My high school friend and fellow artist, who just retired from a career in the archives of the Yale Art Library on the East Coast, loves to snub art in California on the West Coast, whenever possible. I asked her what they thought of the New Getty Museum. She smirked and said, if you build it, they will come. Yeah, mean. A reference, of course, to what she and her cohorts consider a stunning house waiting for stunning art. It also refers to the movie in which a farmer, played by Kevin Costner, is told by the ghost of his father that the dead icons of baseball will gather one for one final game if he builds them a playing field in his corn. And naturally, no one believes him. Until they come. I am often in that position with God. Mm. Prophets spoke in weird detail about one who would be the Messiah. And he came, occupying a human body and remaining God at the same time. He said he was the firstborn of a new Israel, a people who would do even greater things when and because he went back to the Father. One of the most violent, zealot Pharisees in the era following Jesus' death came to pen a letter to the Christian church at Rome about that godly personhood, saying that all of creation is waiting as a woman groans with excruciating pain in a body trying to rid itself of the alien that has occupied space and sucked life out of her like a horror film on HBO. Earthquakes, tidal waves, volcanoes, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, fires, and devastating droughts paint a picture of an increasingly expectant planet pushing a different kind of creature church into the world. If I believe that, and that it applies to me, it's an audacious thing. 
What has a group of people, much like my little self, to do with what the machinations of the universe do? It's hard because I can't see it. I don't know what it looks like. When I write a poem, I don't know what it will look like when I'm done. I put down a word or a phrase. I see a bug or, a, or the way light through Venetian blinds is slanting across a room at dusk. I set aside what is distracting in the least interesting ways and I give myself over to seeing the room, a person, a memory as I have held it. If I, had read, if I have read an article or seen a film and I can't rid myself of the story or a scene in it or something someone said, I can write about that. But I never know what form it will take until I start to write it. One phrase leads to another. I decide that two lines together make a stanza, as was the case with the poem I'll be reading today. And at some point, I know it's done. I was taught, and I believe, the best poems I write are smarter than I am. I think of the Holy Spirit that way, as the writer of the church. We give the day to God to work in us out of his glory. We finish an hour or a day, and we sit back and look at it, the composition of it. Or we file it away and bring it back a week or a year later, and we know it has worked together for good, even if it still hurts, if we just pay attention to the promptings and look for discernment. Paul says if we can't see it, we must let faith see it for us, that it will come on God's word, in Jesus' name, in their perfect timing, and in uncanny sequences by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside each of us, if only we allow it. Paul goes on to say that universal waiting has to do with the adoption of the church. Adoption is something we talk a lot about around here, and it involves much waiting by those who are trying to arrange it, by those who are taking in the adoptee, but mostly by the person who is waiting to be taken in, to be given a home. That person is seldom the one talking about the adventure to a room full of people. In Rome of Paul's day, an infallible earthly father could sell his child for money or land or position. The arrangements were made. The dispossessing father offered and bought back his child twice. On the third exchange, he did not buy his child back. Seven witnesses were called upon to testify to the legality of this exchange and would, if a biological sibling tried to block the inheritance once the father died, the estate was guaranteed through a legal, inviolable will or trust. And it's important for me to remember, it's not the individual who was adopted through God's arrangement in Christ. It's the church. Another metaphor is the bride, which I won't talk about today, but both of these metaphors are personal 
familial, and binding. They speak to the increase of the family of God, to intimacy, to exclusivity, to whosoever will, to the least of us. Even if, like the children who must trust the system of adults, we have no idea how our well-being is being worked out. We must trust a God we don't always understand and wait. What does that look like for this body composed of you and me? What is our part? God asks us to gather two or three or more at a time as we are doing this morning and in one another's houses and in coffee shops Trusting that every time we do it, the Spirit of God is promised to be in the midst of us, teaching us how to listen to one another, directing our prayers, allowing our hearts to be stirred into remembrance of one another when we aren't in physical proximity. And what will that accomplish? I believe we will know it when we see it, when we touch it, when we hear it, And we will know it is something so strange in its connections that no human could have ever done that. We will do it in sorrow, celebration, and weariness, and accomplishment. We will do it out of our gifts and out of our weaknesses. But it is a we, not an I. The universe apparently is waiting for that. Daniel suggested that I read a poem about waiting, mine if possible, and it turns out that I had one. This is what I would call a stream of consciousness or associative poem in which the speaker imagines people, hears speech or music, and in this case, allows her mind to associate freely what turns up with random people in a doctor's waiting room. Stimulated by a series of nostalgic Christmas songs which became popular around the end of World War II, sung by Bing Crosby, Harry Belafonte, Eartha Kitt, and Nat King Cole. She thinks of a black and white documentary that followed an Eskimo named Nanook around his igloo and filmed him interacting with his family, hunting seals, and playing with his dogs on the ice. She thinks of joy around the world when the war was nearly over, but also the USS Indianapolis on its way back from delivering the bomb that would be dropped on Hiroshima, its 895 initial survivors floating for three days, dying of salt poisoning and malnutrition, being picked off a few at a time by circling sharks. 315 survived that ordeal. That kind of waiting. She thinks of Sunday school in a leper healed, his wait for that. She remembers the lost boys of Sudan, rescued out of 185,000 people in Kakuma, Kenya, the world's largest immigrant camp, and relocated to upstate New York. Now there's a reach. And finally comes back to rest in the waiting room again. The season begins in a waiting room. 
Bing Crosby makes in me a kind of wistful that I want to take home. Is there anything wrong with it once a year? Flaherty's documentary claimed that Nanook's people were the happiest on earth. Nanook starved to death three years later hunting seals. Our lives are shaped by plot, my friend says, being the protagonist, which makes the rest of us add it on. Growing up, every Sunday for an hour, it wasn't my life. Ten lepers were healed. One came back with gratitude. In the background, there are post-war standards, more of them. A boy lisping, saying, all I want for Christmas is teeth. Next, muted trumpets and a big band, sultry Santa baby. In the Pacific, sharks had eaten two of three floating crewmen. This one came home. The war was over. Everything was good. The lost boys of Sudan moved to Syracuse and worked at McDonald's in the produce sections of grocery stores. They want to send money and safety back to the camps. The Red Cross finds John's mother. In Oneida County Airport, she keens around him in tribal robes, a scene. She thought he was dead. I miss my mother, too, her innocence. Spencer Ward just checked in with Dr. Farivar's nurse. He has light brown hair and rimless glasses, a lavender shirt with no tie. Harry Belafonte croons, Hark, now hear the angels sing in his liquid way. The lost boys want to go back, swim in the Nile, even with the crocodiles. They don't care that New York has the doctors. In this room, we all are waiting for the doctor. No one is great among us. This is our best joy.